If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me and turn once again to the book of Galatians. To the book of Galatians, we return uh, to our study of this first century letter, a study that we began last fall. We set it aside for the season of Advent as we jumped into the story of Ruth, and then last week I started off the new year meditating on Psalm 91, but there's a lot of water has gone under the bridge uh, since we were here last, and it's been almost two months since we've been in the book of Galatians, and so I, I want to spend just a few minutes getting our head back around the letter even before I, I open it and, and read it to you this morning. You know, God's people in the first century did not have uh, the luxury that we have of holding a copy of God's word in your laps or, or seeing God's word pro, uh, projected on a screen behind them, let alone digesting that word and, and sitting with that word over a matter of weeks and weeks and weeks as we are doing. We have that privilege and so uh, I want to spend just a, a few minutes remembering where we've been. This has been a letter that Paul has been writing to the ancient first century churches in the region of Galatia. It's modern day Turkey. It's a collection of churches where false teachers have infiltrated these churches, churches that Paul had been a part of planting and strengthening and nurturing, and they've questioned Paul's character, they've questioned his message, and they've sought to add to that message, to add to the good news of what Jesus has done. And Paul has been saying, in, and he's not been mincing words, that you may not add to the gospel of Jesus because by adding to the gospel of Jesus, you actually destroy the gospel of Jesus. It's not just that these false teachers are teaching a different gospel, it's that they are teaching really no gospel at all. Their message is not good news. And so Paul wants to bring God's people, this young church, trying to figure out their way. He wants to bring them back to the centrality of Jesus. And so Paul is, this letter is about getting the gospel right. And we've looked at some of the aspects of, of what this gospel is. It's a gospel of substitution and a gospel of rescue that only Jesus makes us right with God. It's a gospel of freedom and blessing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's a message of diversity. For all who believe in this Jesus are children of Abraham. And all of these things are secured for us by faith. And by faith alone. Let's return, as we return this morning to where we left off, which was in the middle of chapter 3, we come to a, a pretty difficult passage to understand. As I'm reading this, you will kind of, you'll see why at the end of November, Pastor Nate was like, eject, eject, let's get into Advent and do something different for a while. But preaching through the books of the Bible, I don't have the luxury of skipping it. God doesn't want us to skip it. He has something for us today. And it's a message that again proclaims to us the good news of Jesus. So listen carefully as I read, and I invite you, if you're able, 
to stand for the reading of God's word, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25 is where we'll be meditating today, 15 through 25. Paul says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Is the law then contrary? Excuse me. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Paul has already in this letter, he's covered a lot of ground, and in this chapter alone, chapter 3, which we, I recognize, kind of just jumped right back into, he's come at these churches from a couple different angles in order to argue for the integrity of the good news. He first argued from their experience. Back in the first few verses of chapter 3, he, he brought up them receiving the Holy Spirit and he, he asked them, how did, you, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? How did that come about? By, by faith or by you working, by you doing something? And then he began to argue from Scripture, bringing up the familiar story of Abraham. Many of you remember the story, we talked about it. When we were last in the book of Galatians, Yahweh called Abram to himself, promising him a land and a seed. And he said that through that seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he confirmed that promise, that covenant to his son Isaac and then his son Jacob. And Paul made the point that these things came to Abraham not because of his works, 
but by faith. The Bible says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So now this morning, Paul is really jumping back into that same vein of argument. Having argued from their experience, now he's focusing on the history of the Old Testament and these figures that those Jews would have known well. So I have just two truths as we try to unpack these difficult verses, two truths that I want us to meditate on and think about this morning. And and they're two truths that are divided into two sections. So truth number one is 15 through 18, and then we'll jump to 19 through 25 for the second truth. And the first one is this. It's God's promise, not our performance, that matters. That's the first thing I think Paul is is wanting to say in these verses. It's God's promise, not our performance, that matters. I mean, two words have been significant in this whole study in the book of Galatians. The words faith and the word works. What saves us? Belief in Jesus or obeying the law. In other words, the promise or our performance. Paul has been adamant in saying that we are saved, that we are made God's people through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the Judaizers, those who had come into the church, saying that more needed to be done, namely, you need to return to those Jewish rituals that were part of God's people for generations upon generations, rituals like circumcision, the Judaizers are struggling with this faith alone business. Faith, faith, faith. That's all we hear from you, Paul. If it's faith, 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 then what about the law? What about Moses? What about Mount Sinai? If there were two pillars in the Jewish faith, it was Abraham and Moses. And Paul seemingly is forgetting about the latter. And so Paul in these verses returns to the Old Testament in order that he might show them, hear this, Paul returns to the Old Testament in order that he might show them how they need to interpret the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has come. My daughter this week began applying for for scholarships, college scholarships. I know many of you parents have been through this process, some of you more than once, not just with yourselves, but with your children who are trying to fund their dreams of going to college. We all know that scholarships are, are built upon performance. Me, personally, I was never smart enough, never athletic enough to get much of any scholarships when I went off to college. However, when I went to get my Master's of Divinity, that was another story altogether. Some of you have heard the story. My wife and I were living in Augusta, Georgia, both as school teachers. 
Christian school teachers, we had both gotten out uh, from our out from under our collegiate debt, and we were finally free. And that's when we felt God's call to attend seminary. But how would we ever fund seminary? Our oldest daughter, Ellie, had already arrived, and we finally weren't in debt, and we certainly hadn't had time to save any money, certainly not on a school teacher's salary. And the short of it is this. I didn't get any scholarships based on my grades or my accolades. I went to graduate school. I got a Master's of Divinity on a promise. Yes, on a promise. On the simple, beautiful, amazing, written and spoken word of a generous couple who set their affection upon me and my family and offered to pay the bill. And so we picked up, packed up, moved 2,000 miles away from Augusta, Georgia to Southern California and enrolled without ever receiving a penny, without ever signing a contract of any means, but just on a promise. But we knew that the promise was trustworthy. You see, I bring up this real life example to launch us into the human example that Paul gives here in the book of Galatians in our opening verse. It's one centered on the hearer's understanding of the word covenant. The Greek word here is diatheke, and it's most often translated, as it is in the ESV, as covenant. They've put man-made in front of it. But it can also be translated testament, and it sometimes is translated testament, as in a last will and testament. And I think that's more helpful for us to have in our minds is that idea of a last will and testament as opposed to a covenant. And so Paul says, to give a human example, even with a last will and testament, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now there's some debate, what did Paul have in mind here? Did he have Greek law in mind, which some say that Greek law stated that once a will or a testament had been made, it could not be changed no matter what? We know that wills in our experience, wills in Roman law, they could be changed by the one who made them as many times as they want up until the point that that person dies. And then once that person dies, then no more changes can be made, right? We can all agree with that. So we don't know quite what Paul has in mind, but it really, it doesn't matter. He's making the point that the promise made to Abraham by Yahweh had not been trumped by the law. The law that was given to Moses years later. Like an unbreakable will, like a last will and testament, it couldn't be changed. It's God's promise, not our performance that matters. And why is this so? Well, I think he tells us, 
or at least points us in that direction. Two reasons why this is so. Why God's promise can't be annulled. The first is the nature of the one making the promise, and the second is the, the ultimate thing that is being promised. Now here we go. Buckle up, because this is, this is, this is going to get difficult. To understand how Paul can say such a statement as he says in, in verse 15, I think we need to begin by understanding the way that covenants were often made, literally cut, in the ancient world. That was the phrase, to cut a covenant. And, and why did that phrase, cutting a covenant, come to be? Because two parties in the ancient world would come together Each would bring with them sacrificial animals, and as gory as this sounds, they would cut the animals in two, separate them, and then the two parties would walk in between the pieces. What they were essentially saying in doing this was that if I do not fulfill my end of this agreement, may this be my fate. You see, this was a serious, serious thing. But here's the thing. When this ceremony takes place between God and Abraham in Genesis 15, something different happens. And it's too good to just talk about. I want to read it to you. Genesis chapter 15, you can flip there in your Bibles if you have them open before you. If you don't, you can just listen to me as I read. I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'll start in verse 1 just to kind of give us some of the context about what's going on. But I eventually want to get to near the end of the chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought, them out, he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. And there's that phrase that Paul has brought up in the book of Galatians, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But here's where it gets good and a little bit gory. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I should possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove him drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
Let's skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Did you see it? Only God passes in between the pieces. This is not two equal parties agreeing. This is a promise from the Most High. There is no performance needed. God will do it, he's saying. Abraham, you just fall asleep. As we sung earlier in that great hymn that's been retuned, but it's an old hymn, I by myself have sworn, is what the Lord says and what we sang. That's what's going on here. But not only that, Paul brings up in our passage specifically the the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham. Paul gets pretty nitpicky here. Not in a bad way, actually in a good way. In a way that reminds us of the intentionality of even the tenses of God's word. Right? He does this by pointing out in verse 16 that in Yahweh's declaration of his promise to Abram, a promise that he walked through and he swore to himself, that he always uses the singular, offspring, not offsprings. Sure, that, uh, that promise made to Abraham, it applied to Isaac and, and Jacob. Yes, it had to do, as Genesis 15 says, with the land that God's people would take possession of. But something much greater, someone much greater was always in view from the very beginning of the promise. Now Paul knows that that word offspring, even though it's a singular tense, that it has a collective use. He knows that. But it's because, and it's always been the intention of Yahweh from the first time he uttered those words, that we are collectively bound up in Christ Jesus as one. That's the point that Paul is wanting to make. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. So when the law came generations later through through Moses, and that's where we're headed in just a moment, it's not a different plan or a better plan. It doesn't replace the promise, but it's subservient to the one that was already in place. That's what Paul is trying to say. It's God's promise, not our performance, that matters. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the gospel. This is what we come back every Lord's Day to remind ourselves of. This good news that is unlike any news out there. I mean, there's no eightfold 
path to follow. There's no five pillars to adhere to. There's no scholarship forms to fill out that you need to qualify for. Just an unbelievable, amazing acknowledgement of your need and an acceptance of Jesus as the one promised, promised by an unbreakable promise by Yahweh Himself. Our hearts need to hear this because we so easily, so often make it about us. We live in a world where everyone is trying to be good, whatever that means. And we have a message of grace, a message of promise. And that leads us to the second half of the passage this morning. Verses 19 through 25, and our second truth that I want us to move to. Not just that it's God's promise, not our performance that matters, but our performance shows our need for the promise. Our performance shows our need for the promise. Kind of flipping that phrase on its head. Dads and moms, you you probably remember this phrase. You've heard it maybe this week. I can do it, Daddy. I can do it, Mom. The frustration of our little ones and wanting to figure something out and do it on their own. And what did we do at times? At least what what did I do at times? To show them that they weren't quite so ready, that their britches weren't quite so big, that they actually needed me a little bit longer, I let go. We let go and, and, and they fell. Not to their deaths, just to a skinned knee and to a bruised ego. They couldn't do it. But they needed to fail in order to see it. You see, Paul recognizes that there's a tension in what he's saying. It's frustrating the Judaizers. God's revelation of his relationship to Abraham was one of promise. It was all about what God was going to do. I will, I will, I will. God's revelation to Moses was one of law. It was seemingly all about what man was supposed to do. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. And so his opponents cry, if God's plan is all about a promise, then why even have the law? And it's here where Paul reminds us of the beauty and of the wisdom of God's plan. Law and promise, grace and works are not in opposition, but work together in fullness in Jesus. Romans 3, let me read a couple passages from Romans. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law that is but there is no law, there is no, where there is no law, excuse me, there is no transgression. And then Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, the law was never meant to give salvation, is Paul's point. It was to show our need for salvation. John Calvin, the great reformer, part of our heritage, calls this the first use of the law to show us our inability to keep it and our need for a Savior. The second use is to restrain sin. And the third use we're going to get to in a couple chapters. But you see, Paul argues in verses 19 and 20 that even in the giving of the promise, there was a difference when compared to the giving of the law. Now here, if I haven't glazed your eyes over already, here, here we go. I'm going to glaze them over now. This is hard to understand. These verses, verses 19 and 20. But essentially, what Paul is saying is that the law, when Yahweh gave the law to his people, it came third hand. God gave it to angels, to Moses, who then gave it to the people. And you're like, angels? What? I don't remember angels with the Ten Commandments. Charles and Heston didn't see any angels. I don't remember that. It's not a teaching that's prevalent, but it is found in the Scripture. Moses says in his final blessing in Israel, in Deuteronomy 33, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And then Stephen, at the end of his sermon in the book of Acts, right before he's about to get pelted with stones and killed, he says this to the Jews, you who receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so Paul, we don't know quite what, how this is like fitting into and bolstering his argument. But Paul is making the point that the law came third hand through angels, through an intermediary. Moses isn't stated, but it's clear that the intermediary is Moses. Whereas the promise came firsthand, directly to Abraham. Not only that, but as we talked earlier, there was no response needed. It came to Abraham, and and he wasn't even an equal party walking through the pieces. God put him to sleep, and God swore to himself. And so Paul argues that while they are both from God, the promise and the law, both part of his plan, it's actually the law that is subservient to the promise, not the other way around. The law doesn't bring life. The law actually brings death. As one commentator says, the law is like chemotherapy. It kills you, kills part of you, in order that you might be built back up. And so we would say our performance, or maybe more rightly, our lack of performance shows our need for the promise. That's what Paul's trying to say. It imprisons us that we might long for freedom. It disciplines us that we might long for peace. I want to read a quote to you from one commentator, John Stott. Many of you will know that name. It's a great way to just sum up what Paul's saying here about the law. He says, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us 
Will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds? Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification in our life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to be raised up to heaven. And so Paul says in these verses that the law was our guardian. That's the way our ESV Bibles that you have in front of you translate that word. J.B. Phillips, I don't often advocate his translation, but his translation captures maybe what is a better concept for our modern ears. Not just that the law is our guardian, but the law is our strict governess. And what do you think of when you hear that word strict governess? When I think of the word governess, I think of the movie The Sound of Music, right? And indeed, I think that's a good picture for us to think about. Remember how Captain Von Trapp wanted his house run? with all the previous governesses who got chewed up and spit out by these unruly children, he wanted his house run with discipline and rigidity and sternness. Remember, he blows his whistle, and the kids come and they step in line. But then what happens? If that's the strict governess, what happens? A different kind of guardian comes. Maria. And Maria comes with grace and tenderness and beauty and love. She doesn't want the whistle. She wants to come to these children imprisoned and burdened And she wants to show them and give them life. That's Jesus. Jesus is the everlasting promise. Nothing in your hands do you bring. Simply to the cross, His cross, you cling. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how our hearts need to hear again and again that Your promise is true, that Your promise is everlasting, that as we were reminded at the beginning of this service, when, when we are faithless, You are faithful. And Father, we thank You for Your law, which reminds us how short we fall And yet when we do fall, we fall into the strong arms of Jesus. Arms of grace and tenderness and beauty. And indeed, it's that message that was good news to Paul's heart that transformed him from being a murderer to one who was murdered for this message. Father, may it so fill our hearts and our sails
to live for you, to live not as orphans, but as sons and daughters. Father, impress this upon our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.